Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're doing a really interesting show today, and the reason I say it's so interesting is because right now I'm at the venue of ASI 2018 in Orlando, Florida, and what we're doing is actually a segment that's kind of a makeup piece. Uh, We recorded some footage at the National Congress of American Indians back in 2017 that we were never able to use because uh, one of the segments we had some uh, technical problems with. So what we're doing is we're recording this opening segment here in Orlando, and then we're going to transition to uh, National Congress back in uh, 2017. So it'll be an interesting uh, collage or uh, a compilation of two different venues. Sitting across from me in this exciting venue is Lauren Fish. He's a clinical counselor, actually a licensed clinical social worker who works at Holbrook Indian School in Arizona. Lauren, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, Dr. Rose. Good to be here. Lauren, a lot of folks who tune into the show, they've heard of Holbrook. You guys have been around for uh, a long time. How long has it been? 72 years. Wow, 72 years. And and we've talked before in some of our dialogues over the years with you and other members of the Holbrook staff that this is a very different boarding school. It's, it's not the kind of boarding school that uh, many of our listeners who are uh, – a bit older, have real sad experiences of. This is a school that's honored Native traditions from the beginning and has tried to uh, uh, help the self-esteem, the the outlook, the academics of Native students. And uh, you have quite a following, quite a group of alumni that are very supportive in Indian country. Tell us a little bit uh, about the kind of feedback you get from past students. What do they like about the Holbrook experience? Um. Almost to a person, they come back and say that it was a safe place for them to learn, and that was a big deal for them. Um, We get a lot of good feedback from uh, past students, uh, even some that uh, got asked to leave at time or two. They'll come back and say, this was the place that really helped me to decide that I did want to learn, uh, even though they didn't get to finish their learning there. So it doesn't always have to be that they went there first through 12th grade, but just even if they were there for a short time, it seems that the caring staff there, the safe environment, was um, enough to help them to see that they had value, and then they turned around and uh, built on that for uh, further education. Now, do I understand correctly that any student with a Native background, the school is open to them? I mean, at least they'll be considered? Correct. Uh, We are um, just a few miles south of the Navajo Reservation, uh, so a majority of our students are Navajo, uh, but we have had, um, I believe we're up to about 20 different tribes have come through the school at one point or another in the 72-year history of Holbrook Indian School. So a lot of the students do come from uh, reservations, maybe more rural settings, but do you have some urban students come from? uh... Uh, Yes. uh, Recently, we've had some students uh, who are in the Phoenix area, and and, um, the uh, public school system there um, wasn't meeting their needs, and so um, they came to uh, Holbrook, and they enjoyed it and uh, benefited uh, from being there. Well, that's exciting. So basically what we're saying is here's an option 
for any Native student who's maybe not, things are not working out in whatever setting they're in, but at the same time, you're not just trying to ask for students who don't fit in because there are some students that seek you out preferentially because of maybe their parents or others who had an experience there. Yeah, a lot of uh, the students that we get, they're uh, nieces, nephews, uh, cousins, grandchildren of students who have been at Holbrook before, and um, they're recommended there uh, uh, by their family. And so uh, we really appreciate that recommendation because to me that's one of the highest recommendations to send your family there. Now, I don't know a lot about Holbrook, but from interviews and from talking with folks who work at the school, I've heard some pretty exciting things. I mean, one of the things that I have appreciated as far as the emphasis on Native traditions and, and tribal values is you have some really interesting classes there, um, training people. Is it true you got a, actually a horsemanship class? Yes, uh, we have a horsemanship class, which uh, some of the students are a little nervous about at first, but uh, they get really excited about it, and it really helps them to not, not only um, um, gain f confidence physically, uh, but also emotionally, you know, um, you, you have a horse that weighs several hundred pounds more than you do, mm -hmm. and yet you're able to guide it around and, and you're able to form a bond with it. And it's a really neat experience to watch even the younger ones be able to do that. Now, many students do have artistic skills in their heritage, and yet maybe because of a family that's well, maybe it's less than ideal. Maybe they're from a, a home where there's been some turmoil. They really haven't been able to explore some of their artistic skills. You really take an interest on that side of things, too. Is that correct? Yes. Um, we have a uh, pottery class right now, and it's uh, several different levels of pottery class. So they can come in and not know anything about pottery. And uh, we have students uh, that start out, and they're very unsure of themselves at first. But then in a very short period of time, uh, they're turning out some beautiful pieces of pottery. And it's uh, really neat to see how that builds their confidence. And then they're able to take that out into other things like their academics or their social life. That is exciting. You were telling me before we started recording this segment about another thing that that's pr sounds pretty unique to me a way that you help students bond at the beginning of the year, kind of getting them to reconnect with nature and with one another. Tell us about that innovative experience. It's called outdoor school, and uh, one of the things that we like to do is to take our students out of the classroom because we feel like that uh, a learning uh, can take place outside of the classroom as well as in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And outdoor school lasts a week. And... Um, the um, three years ago, uh, they went to Rocky Mountain National Park, and they spent wow. a whole week there, and they were able to have the Rocky Mountain National Park be the classroom. Wow. Um, two years ago, um, we went to southern Utah. We were able to go to Bryce Canyon and Zion National Park, and we were able to do some uh, hiking and camping and have our classroom be right there. I was able to teach a class in... Um, wild and medicinal uh, plants and really? so there in the uh, um, high desert of southern utah we went out and looked at some different plants and and saw how the um, uh, natives in that area used those plants uh, in the past and uh, we were able to sample some and it was a neat experience some of them knew exactly what we were looking at and doing and others it was the first time they'd ever experienced anything like that it was a really neat uh, experience to to share that with the students 
So this is great. So you're doing innovative things with students, and then you're supplying some pretty close attention. I mean, you don't have thousands of students at Holbrook, right? No. Um, our, our staff-to-student ratio is uh, a lot um, better than some other schools, um, sometimes uh, three-to-one, sometimes two-to-one even. Um, those groups that I'm talking about, it's about five to ten that we're dealing with in the outdoor schools. So it's a pretty good uh, attention. The, the next year, we actually went to San Diego, which doesn't seem like an, an outdoor uh, school kind of experience, but we camped out. Uh, we went to the ocean a lot. We did some marine biology. Really? Yeah. We, um, uh, some of them went, uh, never, never seen the ocean before. We went out on a boat. Some of them never been on a boat before. We saw, um, hundreds of dolphins when we went on the whale watch. So it was a really neat experience to see these young people, uh, for the first time, uh, interacting in these ways. And, uh, it was enjoyable to watch. So this is exciting stuff. And then in addition to this close, faculty to student ratio you also take a personal interest in the counseling arena you're a trained professional counselor correct and do you find that the environment of a boarding school where you're bonding in ways that probably wouldn't happen in a a day school does that give you some advantages as a counselor to help students work through some challenges that may be in their past or present yeah, um, I personally have to be careful because I'm the counselor. There's a thing called dual relationships uh, in counseling, and I have to be able to set boundaries of that and, and also be, to be able to discuss that with the students uh, to help them understand the issues there. Um, and But in a lot of ways, um, our, our school is more than just academics. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to me, any opportunity that I have to... Um, help these students uh, socially, emotionally, even if it's outside of the office, is a, is a ben- and it can be a benefit to them, uh, that's a benefit to everyone. Now, for folks who are hearing about Holbrook Indian School for the first time, they're wondering, well, how can we get more information? This sounds like a, a novel place. I'd like to check it out. Where do you point someone to get more information? Our website is a, gl- a great place to start. It's holbrookindianschool.org. HolbrookIndianSchool.org, and um, there's uh, some videos on there that tell about the school. There's some articles, uh, talks about our, our four pillars. We talk about um, the importance of mental wholeness, academic and artistic wholeness, physical wholeness, spiritual wholeness, and we uh, encourage all the students to learn and grow in all of those areas because that's how they become happy, healthy uh, grown-ups and adults. Excellent. So, I, you know, I'm sitting here looking at you, Lauren, and you've got the Holbrook Indian School shirt on. So I got to think of my listeners. They don't have that advantage. I'm, I'm getting worried. Maybe someone doesn't know how to spell Holbrook, as obvious as I may think it is. So how do you spell that? Holbrook is uh, H-O-L-B-R-O-O-K. Holbrook. And is that named after a person, a town? What is it named after? Uh, it's in the city of Holbrook, uh, which is uh, just south of the Navajo Reservation, just off of I-40. Okay. Because, you know, as I'm thinking of the of the listener, thinking, I hope someone doesn't think of a whole brook, like a whole lake or a whole river. <laughs> it can be misspelled. Yeah, Holbrook, H-O-L-B-R-O-O-K, holbrookindianschool.org. And then what about... 
the few people today that may not have Internet access? We, uh, our phone number is very accessible. It's 928-524-6845. Okay, give us that one more time. 928-524-6845. So, Lauren, I know there's a lot of folks who are concerned about academics and about sometimes the learning style of Native students. And, of course, we can't generalize. But I've often heard folks say that conventional Western classrooms don't seem to be designed for the average Native student to thrive in. Do you think that's a real criticism? And some of the things we've been talking about, are those deliberate to help Native students be more successful uh, in the big picture? Uh, yes and no. I, I mean, I think that um, we have to find out uh, why that student isn't learning. Is mm-hmm. it an emotional issue? Is it um, a learning disability? Um, is it, uh, um, you know, is, is there a um, physical issue, uh, mm-hmm. traumatic brain injury, fetal alcohol syndrome? You know, wh- what might be going on with them that might be hindering them from learning? A lot of times it's emotional. They're having flashbacks while they're sitting in the classroom. The teacher's teaching. They're not going to be gaining that information. So we need to figure out uh, what those issues are. Now, there are some students who uh, don't have a desire to maybe go on a- a to in an academic career. Maybe they want to choose a-, a vocation. So we also have uh, welding classes. We have woodworking classes, auto mechanics. Uh, we have an agricultural program where they can learn how to uh, work in the uh, field with their hands, growing Tremendous. food, just as uh, their uh, ancestors did before them. So um, there's lots of different opportunities, but we feel like if we can help each student do whatever it is they have a heart for, then uh, we're doing what we need to do so they can get back into the community and better it. This is just great stuff, Lauren. Well, again, our uh, time in this segment is, is slipping away. One more time, give us that website and that phone number. HolbrookIndianSchool.org, and our number is 928-524-6845. Check it out, HolbrookIndianSchool.org, and then the phone number 928-524-6845. What we're going to do right now is we're going to get ready to uh, transition. So although we've been here in Orlando florida at the asi international convention 2018 our next segment is going to bring us back in time to the national congress of american indians you're going to hear three great interviews from that venue that have never aired before on american indian living so you want to stay tuned for this episode of american indian living i'm dr david derose we've got a lot more coming up different venue different guests but great material don't miss it we'll be right back after this Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical. 
medical unit. Respond to 102 Maple Avenue. Possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose here at Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the convention center. It's the venue for the National Congress of American Indians in the fall of 2017. Across from me for this segment is Will Maya. Will is the chairman of the Language Conservancy. Will, what is your organization all about? Well, uh, the Language Conservancy is a nonprofit organization that works with tribes, schools, uh, programs around the country. Uh, helping those programs to revitalize their language, provide material for those languages, training. Uh, we do apps, we do dictionaries, we do grammars, we do all the things that are needed to uh, make these languages thrive again, to get speakers created, um, and to give people you know, opportunities to learn their language. I was fascinated just wandering by your booth. I see all these uh, tribe-specific language resources. So how did all those come about? Well, uh, we started about 15 years ago, mostly working with Lakota, which is in South Dakota, and uh, we were able to create a series of textbooks, a dictionary. Uh, we even uh, translated and dubbed a cartoon series, the Berenstein Bears. And uh, tribes would come to us and ask, well, can we have similar things in our language? And uh, uh, eventually we started uh, the sister organization, which we're talking about now, called the Language Conservancy. And we basically use a template, a model for these textbooks, and we basically converted those textbooks for the other languages, uh, created customized artwork and other things that are needed. We also do teacher training uh, for each of the different languages, these things called summer institutes, which are great kind of events and gatherings that uh, bring teachers and also learners together around language, get everyone on the same page, uh, really create a community of what we call language warriors to, you know, uh, not just teach and learn the language, but, you know, become advocates for the language and, and make language cool again, make language fun again, keep it front and center in terms of people's attention. So language is a priority in many tribes. At the same time, many smaller tribes look at 
some of the challenges with developing resources, and I imagine financially it may seem daunting to some tribes to move in that direction. Is, is that true, or are there ways that your group and others can help people come up with relatively cost-effective solutions to have more resources in their indigenous tongue? So, uh, you know, there's a wide variety of language situations in this country. Uh, originally, there were over 500 languages. Uh, currently, we're talking about less than 100. Uh, about 80% of those have probably 25 or fewer speakers. So we're really talking about a total collapse of Native American languages across mm-hmm. the country. Uh, there are a, a variety of different situations. There's some tribes, of course, like Navajo, Diné language, that have 250,000 speakers. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority have just a small handful. Mm-hmm. And there's also tribes that are everywhere in between. We have tribes that are 1,500 speakers, you know, 1,000 speakers, 3,000 speakers, 500 speakers, 50 or less. I mean, there's a wide variety. And tribes are also diverse in terms of, you know, uh, not only parts of the country that they're from, but also their financial resources. There's tribes that are wealthy in terms of casino or or oil and gas, uh, tribes that have big land masses, some that are in small places, uh, some that are on reservations with their own controlled school systems, others that are controlled by the state. There's no one-size-fits-all. And so we try to customize our solutions to, you know, the needs of those communities. We understand the diversity of those communities. We understand all the issues there. So we can usually come up with a suite of products and solutions that tackle the most urgent things. If they need the dictionary first, we'll work on that. If they have a dictionary ready, we'll move on to the next things. Mm -hmm. There's a number of must-haves dictionaries. I usually one of them. Good documentation of the language is necessary to build the other products. Uh, and, you know, but then there's a number of other things that are needed, too. We need young people. We need facilities to do the schools and, and so forth and so on. So it's a, there's no real solution or one real uh, answer to your, to your question other than to say that we do customize it to uh, fit the needs of the different communities. To me, the big message that I hear in your, your answer, Will, is that really any tribe that is wanting help with preserving and kind of... Uh, recapturing an enthusiasm for the language, there really should be not hesitating to call you, to contact your group, because there's something that you can do that can probably help them right where they're at. Am I reading too much into your response? No, uh, we're, we're open to assisting and helping any tribe uh, and every tribe that we can, and we do the best we can to support all of those tribes and languages. I will say that, uh, you know, the clock is ticking, and this is a uh, an acute problem. I don't think tribes should, uh, you know, wait uh, very long to figure out whether or not they need outside help, ex- expertise to uh, solve these problems. Essentially, you know, uh, we do this for a living. Uh, even though we are a nonprofit, we have, you know, uh, a huge number of linguists and pedagogical specialists and other people that we can bring to a solution. And so when we talk about creating language products, you know, often we use an analogy of, you know, if you were going to build a a football stadium, uh, would you want to bring the best engineers to that project that you possibly could? Uh, And the answer usually is yes. And that's basically what, how we function. We'll, we'll build the language infrastructure for the tribe again. It's up to the tribe to use it and, uh, you know, create the language, um, you know, success moving forward with their speakers. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we're generally, yes, we're willing to work with uh, any tribe that's uh, got 
you know, the interest and the passion for it. It is a two-way street. There's no, you know, we just, we can't be working, um, you know, kind of in a, in a bubble on it. It is, uh, there's a lot of community interaction. There's a lot of back and forth review of materials, uh, working with speakers, working with schools and administrators. So this is not something that, you know, can be done uh, just on a, on a one-way type basis. This is certainly a relationship, and we, you know, do the best we can to, you know, maintain the, the integrity of that relationship. We, you know, spend a lot of time uh, making sure we do everything correctly and with a, a lot of credibility and accuracy. You use this analogy of the clock ticking. What I'm assuming is the big concern is that many of those indigenous language speakers are passing away. And uh, especially for a smaller tribe, if there is only, you know, 25 or 50 individuals who speak that language, if things are not done in the short term to preserve it and even document the language, it could be lost. Is that part of what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the clock is ticking uh, in part because speakers are passing on and the last opportunity to you know, document completely these languages is, is passing away. Frankly, this process started 40, 50 years ago, if not longer. Based on most of our studies, the language stopped being passed intergenerationally in the mid-1950s. Mm. From that moment on, young people were born primarily as English speakers of first language. And so what happened from that moment on is the real numbers of speakers in any Indian community population started to decrease because as people passed away, they weren't being replaced by a new generation of speakers. And so, you know, what has to happen, first off, is we can no longer rely on this natural path of learning and teaching languages that is in the family and in the home. We have to use these institutions of schools, immersion schools, mm-hmm. nests, every anything you can imagine to create this artificial setting to create second language learners of the language. That takes a long time. That takes 10 or 15, 20 years. After that, those young people become parents themselves, hopefully also marry other second language learners of the language. Then they raise their kids as first language speakers okay. again once in the language. This is a 30 or 40 year cycle. Wow. So if we only have an average speaker age right now in most tribes of 60 or 70 years old, right, mm-hmm. we want to maintain continuity between the existing speakers and the learners, and eventually the second language, uh, the first language learners once again. Now, that's a difficult continuity to maintain. We do the best we can to get the process started quickly and be successful with that. But, you know, frankly, it's it takes a lot longer to create speakers than it does than they are passing on. So there's uh, it's, it's an uphill battle, and it takes a huge amount of resources. I can tell you right now that the U.S. government spent between... Uh, 1870-1922, over $2 billion eradicating Native American languages through the boarding school system. Right, right. Right? In addition to the years between 1920 and 1950, uh, when most boarding schools were finally stopped, but we're talking about many billions of dollars spent eradicating Native American languages. Meanwhile, you know, schools have been allowed to teach Native languages since the 1970s, but it's only been in the last five or ten years that any effective teaching has ever been done. So you can imagine, and with a real pittance of resources. I mean, we're talking about nickels and dimes relative to the amount of money that was spent eradicating these languages. So it will take hundreds of millions of dollars to truly bring these languages back. And, you know, that's 
that's the issue. Fundamentally, who takes responsibility for the eradication of five to 600 languages that embed the culture, the traditions, the songs, the stories, and all of that of tens of thousands of people, hundreds yeah. of thousands, millions of people, right? And when that's gone, the entire uh, you know, linguistic heritage of all of those people is also gone. We're talking about a, a national treasure, linguistic treasures mm. that are being eradicated. How does someone get a hold of you if they want to get involved? Well, they should uh, visit us on our website, uh, uh, www.languageconservancy.org, and um, they can see the projects we work with and all the other things that are happening. Okay, so I've got Language Conservancy. C-O-N-S-E-R-V-A-N-C-Y dot O-R-G. Will, thank you so much for stepping away and joining us. Yeah, my, my pleasure. So we are going to be back with uh, more on today's edition of American Indian Living. We're speaking from the Convention Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and we will be having other great guests as we round out today's program. Again, if you want more about preserving native language, you just heard from Will Maya, he's the chairman of the Language Conservancy, and you can get more information at languageconservancy.org. We'll be right back with more. I'm Dr. DeRose. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre recorded broadcast, please call 1 800 775 HOPE. That's 1 800 775 4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose for another segment on today's edition of American Indian Living. We're halfway through the show, and another great guest is with me here in the exhibit hall in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's Julian Jacobs. Julian comes to us from Alaska. It's great to have you on the show, Julian. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. DeRose? Yes. 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 yes, I just got here um, coming from, actually it was in Maine. Uh, the other day, we had a, unfortunately a funeral for my father. Wow! And so we um, took him out, um, took the family out, and just came here uh, to NCAI after that. So pretty fortunate to be here, just kind of lift the spirits and uh, have a couple talks about climate change and so forth. Great. Well, we're just so glad that you could uh, slip away and join us. So you have deep roots in Indian country. Tell us a bit about your tribal background. Well, so my father, he's originally from Hooper Bay, uh, which is um, nor- northwest Alaska in the basically the tundra fields. He grew up um, out there. My mother's from Philadelphia. And we grew up in a town called Bethel, which uh, is actually called Mumtitluk, which means people to smokehouse. So it's a real traditional town. Uh, we hunt, we fish, we continue with our traditions of hunting and fishing, uh, gathering off the land. Um, just a, a, an amazing balance of sustainable living and perspective of of just real acknowledgement of how we're able to live off the land, I think, is one of the biggest uh, lessons that we know of is that the land teaches us how to live. Mm. And so and we're seeing a lot of imbalance from, uh, from what we're seeing on the front, basically the forefront. And uh, um, the changes that we see are just astronomically, uh, that's not even a word. We don't know how to adapt to this, you know. Well, let's talk about this. I mean, this is why I wanted you on the show, because there is so much talk today about sustainable communities. And Native Americans and Native Alaskans have have mastered that over the years. But the landscape is changing rapidly. Tell us a little bit about what you're passionate about. I know one of those topics relates to climate change, doesn't it? Right, yeah. And I think some of the, I mean, just for what we're seeing too is because it's permafrost that's melting, which is the mm-hmm. permanent frost that's underneath the um, the, uh, the soil, the subsurfaces, the peat, in which this is a really nutrient-rich soil, which has these, um, for who know we don't necessarily, we don't necessarily know how long, uh, just as long as we've been there, that, from glaciation to the sediments of fish and to the other sediments that have been there from the different ecosystems that have been sustaining through there, um, we have such rich soil that we're looking at. Um, it's being unleashed, and the permafrost is being unleashed. We're seeing mammoth tusks. We're seeing all the other uh, remnants of our different eras come out. But it also holds clues to how we live, too, in which the salmon for which it, ha- it basically is the keystone species for us, it acts as the... Um, basically the embedment for the soil so it enriches the soil which basically is it allows the trees and the roots to gather itself and create a structure and a stronghold in the soil which stops the erosion but at the same time it also you know creates biodiversity from the different um, birds and animals that can come and land and perch and so forth Mm -hmm. which also brings more biodiversity so we're seeing um you know we're able to tell from listening to the river that if there's a certain um, change in water. So you have cold cold water, and then you have warm water underneath, and sometimes it's switched. Hmm. But what that'll do is that'll tell us that there's pike that are traveling to the certain area, which also means that it's going to eat up some of the salmon areas, huh. and which tells us that if it's eating up the salmon areas, there's not an area where there's going to be this embedment, which also means that through a period of time, you're going to have erosion and so forth. So we'd have to be very... 
um, we'd have to watch the ecosystem so delicately that we can determine what the future of this land is going to look like in seven to ten years because of what the river even sounds like. You know, so we had to get very clever at being able to watch what are the signs of, of changes, what are the signs of, of what we can see, even from if it's pikefish, mm-hmm. northern pike, or if it's uh, the patterns that we see from the warm water to the cold water switching. And so we see this unique ability to live with the land and have it teach us how to live, but at the same time we see how what are the adaptations to it. Mm-hmm. How does the peat work with the clay? How does the sand work with this and so forth? And we see like, well, we have to duplicate what we've seen before, how to create permafrost, and we got in touch with different groups of people. Um, I can't even recall the name right now, but an Indian, uh, in, in India, excuse me, <laughs> um, created um, basically these geysers that kind of have this reverse process where it takes the cold from uh, the air, is able to create a subsurface freezing temperature, and then in the, in the summertime that it's able to act as permafrost, and then releasing that same kind of subsurface cold into the top, which allows condensation of the water. So it acts as though it's an aquifer and releasing the water through ice. And it basically mimics the same nature that it had before when it was colder, when there were streams that were abundant, when it was actually capturing moisture from the air. Mm -hmm. But since the climate changed so much, you can no longer see that. So these different routes that had been there before are now having to be duplicated again by, you know, by our measures, by, you know, talking with other folks. How are you dealing with climate change? Uh, why are Chinese using the clay in order to create models to create fruit, you know, uh, farms in the Goji Desert in China and so forth? So we're seeing all these different things and you know solutions like, well, this is what we're adapting to because peat will turn into uh, will turn into sand, and now we're seeing sandstorms mm-hmm. in the remote Arctic North, really? which we've never seen this before. Uh-huh. You know, and these plumes will go 50 meters up into the air, 100 meters in the air, and so forth, which also damages salmon habitat. So. We're like, okay, how, how do we deal with this? How do we manage this? And how do we mitigate climate change in a way that, okay, well, the, it, it's not just environmentally warming up, but we have to adapt to these things too, which um, we does, you know, we, we're pretty clever, I think, with being able to manage some of this stuff. But at this rate of change, we're definitely trying to figure out um, uh, and work with the existing systems we see now. So there are some people out there that are telling us that climate change is a hoax. It's a figment of people's imaginations. As a native Alaskan who is living uh, basically in a community that has subsisted for hundreds of years, what are the elders saying? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Thanks for making sure I I didn't uh, telescope that too short. But yeah, yeah, so thousands of years. your oral tradition, I mean, yeah. what, what are you hearing? Because some people want to say, right. well, this is just a normal cycle. Right. I, and I think that, um, you know, when we look at this, uh, not just the science of, let's say, climate change and, and carbon dioxide and so forth, you can see it at a DNA level, too. So we know that our alleles are, uh, in our DNA are adapted towards the omegas within our fish. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, ANTHC did a study, Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium did a study to see, well, what is the benefit of why Alaska Natives, we benefit from eating fish? Mm-hmm. And primarily for since us, it takes such a long time for laws to build, we've had to have been there for such a long time in order to adapt to the society, in order to adapt to the ecosystem that's there. So for us, we know that in the Arctic North for polar bears, for nanooks, for seal, for walrus and so forth, you know, the the body needs so many grams of protein. We need so many grams of B12 and vitamins, you know, all the different vitamins and so forth. Mm-hmm. The Arctic North is no place we can get a farm. 
There's not a place where you can get anything else. We don't have the abundance of nature and ecosystems in order to sustain ourselves without having whales, without having walrus. Mm -hmm. Nobody would be able to live there. And so in order for us to even live there, we'd have to have these systems intact in order for us to live there. So we'd have to have use whale meat as a primary source of our nutrition for the winter as well as the salmon in order to supplement if we didn't have whale or if we didn't have caribou. Mm -hmm. So these things are evading us because of the change in climate. Because the, you know, and, and to the people who are listening, if you're saying that, you need to go up there and look. Mm-hmm. You need to go and look at the fact that 40 degrees in the winter last year was happening in December. I remember when I was a child, when I was actually, um, grew up in a place called Bethel, Muntitluk, and school would get canceled if it was 75 below because it was so frequent that it was 70 below. Now we hardly get to 10 below, 20 below, and so forth. And this is within my time. Uh And for them to evade the ideas means that they have evaded the idea of talking with us about what's actually our reality. Mm -hmm. And we're not saying that we don't want to talk. We want to make sure people are taken care of because that's our nature is to take care of people, to show what is it about our ecosystem that people can benefit from. Why is ANTHC doing these studies about fish, about Mm -hmm. salmon, about alleles, about the health of the people? Because we care, and we want to make sure that people are aware and well-equipped to deal with the reality that's changing. And we're not lying here. We're not going to be – nobody's benefiting. You know, we're, we're, There's nobody benefiting from this. Uh, we're not benefiting from the advent of solar energy or the advent of, of uh, extractive industries. We're benefiting um, uh, by people having consultation with us and creating dynamic relationships for us to understand each other. Not by, you know, saying that this is a hoax or anything else. It's that we're trying to adapt as much as we can in order to sustain ourselves in some of the most poorest conditions in in the U.S., Mm. in some of the most arctic and uh, harsh lifestyles with living with fish and ecosystems that are changing. And we want people to know that, you know, because this is not, climate change is not in a vacuum. It's coming down to, it does not have a designated place, you know. Puerto Rico is a part of it. New Zealand, India, mm-hmm. you know, all these places. Yeah. So, Julian, you're seeing climate change firsthand. You're seeing it changing your way of life. Your tribe or your community is looking at specific ways that you can mitigate some of those effects of climate change. You're looking at high-tech solutions mm-hmm. to high-tech problems, right? Yeah, I, I I don't think of them as necessarily high tech. It's just we're mimicking some of the nature's mechanisms, like uh, the guy from India, in order to duplicate what we what had been seen before. Those are very much high tech. We're talking about glycol lines and drilling a little bit and keeping the permafrost um, permanently fro- fro- frozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not much technology. I mean, it's not going to cost that much, but we have to keep these things intact because erosion is a, is a huge uh, major factor because um, shifting... Uh, uh, peat and uh, sustainable areas is an issue because uh, habitat for um, salmon to caribou herds to things that we subsist off is, is an issue and these are changing you know I believe over here washington state hmm. or now i keep on thinking of somewhere else i'm sorry okay. <laughs> we're in minnesota right or milwaukee I've been yeah. traveling a lot. Um, washington state did a study in regards to uh the, some of the caribou that went uh underneath the ice because they were tricked to believe that the ice was thick enough, so uh, a couple hundred thousand had perished because nature has been tricked so much that we just we 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 don't know what to do with this. They fell through the ice. They fell through the ice. Yeah, yeah. Wow. 
And uh, some of these things that have, that have been happening are just going pretty much underreported as though it's inflammatory or, or we're, we're just trying to make some noise about climate change happening. And it's, that's, it is happening. It's nothing that we can you know, stop. It's something we have to adapt to. So, Julian, our time in this segment is rapidly slipping away from us. Hmm. What message would you like to leave with listeners as we close out this segment? Well, I'm not too concerned with trying to convince people. They're gonna, they'll, I think, with time, they're gonna see the. If once they learn nature, they're gonna see it for themselves. But I think we're, the takeaway from what we need to understand is to talk with tribes, to talk with the people who've been on this land. You know, to see not just the changes, but how do we adapt? We're we're pretty much the experts, and we need to be seen as those. Mm-hmm. And we need to be respected and have the uh, same relationships we've had before. No, I mean that's a great message. Julian, if someone's looking for more information, is there a website? Are there other sources of information other than personally connecting with uh, First Nation peoples? Um, I'm a pretty good conduit. Um, so my my email is Kenick Media, Q-E-N-I-K, Media, M-E-D-I-A, at gmail.com. And I answer. Let me make sure that I've got that. Spell uh, Quinnick again for me. Yeah, Kenick, Q-E-N-I-K. Okay, Q-E-N-I-K. Uh, media? media at gmail.com at gmail.com listen we have to step away thanks so much julian for joining us yeah, sure. we really appreciate what you're doing thank you we'll be back with more on today's edition of american indian living i'm dr david derose one final segment coming up don't go away we're back with more just after this today's broadcast has been pre-recorded However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. 
Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose. We're here at the Milwaukee Convention Center. Things are winding down here at the National Congress of American Indians for 2017, at least winding down here in the exhibit hall. But across from me is someone else who's making a big difference in Indian country. He's Micah Wright. He's involved with the first Nations Experience television channel. Micah, it's great to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Micah, I know a lot of people in Indian country are getting uh, more and more aware of what you folks are doing uh, emanating there from Southern California. But for those who have not yet placed FNX on their radar screen, tell us a little bit about what you do. I run FNX. Uh, it stands for First Nations Experience. It is a public broadcaster, nonprofit television network. Uh, I like to say that we are America's only American Indian television network or okay. America's only Native American television network, depending on your preference. And you guys have not been around all that long, is that correct? We've been around for five and a half years. The first three years we were uh, local broadcast only, and then the last two and a half years we've been accessible via satellite, and we are currently distributed via um PBS stations, and tribally-owned television, television stations around the country. So you and I have something in common because we're distributed through the public radio satellite system, and a lot of tribal nations pick our show up that way. You're in that same realm only on the television side. There's a lot more tribal radio stations than there are tribal television stations because the investment is much bigger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How many are there? Do you have any idea? My understanding is that there are seven. And we are carried on six. And one of those seven I did not know about until yesterday. Now that I know about them, I'm going to twist some arms and see if I can't get them to be our seventh. Great, great. So when we talk about the content on the First Nations experience on FNX, is it strictly Native content or you know a whole range of programming that would appeal to a Native audience? We are a Native American and World Indigenous content. Mm. And uh, our audience is uh, our uh, uh, indigenous peoples and consumers of indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. So there's just not enough content to do a 24-7 channel of only Native American content. And so in order to keep things fresh, not only are we always out looking for new Native content, but we're always out looking at other indigenous content from other countries. So we air things from Maori television. Okay. We just picked up a cartoon from Australian television. It's the first Aboriginal kids show ever Uh in Uh Australia, which is kind of startling to think that it's the year 2017 and they just got around to doing the first one. But so, you know, we're always on the lookout. We just aired a a documentary the other day about um, Swedish indigenous people. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't know there were any until we bought the documentary. Okay. So you got all kinds of great programming. Someone who is not in one of those seven areas serviced by a native channel, how can someone in, uh, let's say, Chicago, I'm assuming there's not a native station in Chicago, or is there? 
Uh, there is not, but we do have an affiliate in Chicago. Oh, you do? And, well, we do for another, like, seven days. Okay. Um, Chicago had three PBS stations. Uh-huh. And um, one of their secondary PBS stations, which was WYCC, was owned by the city of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And Rahm Emanuel put them out of business. And uh. so we have lost our um, Chicago affiliate, and we are uh, in the process of speaking to another PBS station in the area to try to get them to carry FNX um, going forward. Uh, but if you were, say, in um, Pascagoula, Mississippi. Okay, thanks for giving me a better example. The, uh, we don't have a, a PBS affiliate in Pascagoula, but what you would do is you would call your PBS station. I believe Mississippi actually is one of those states where it's a statewide network mm-hmm. owned by the schools. Uh, for example, Utah Education Network is PBS for all of Utah KNME PBS New Mexico is PBS for all of New Mexico. Okay. But in California, for example, I think there's something like 15 little PBS fiefdoms. And so um, you have to call your local PBS. And if you're in some place like Mississippi, you'd call Mississippi PBS and uh, ask them to carry the network. So how does that work practically? I mean, you say carry the network. I mean, you have 24-7 programming. They've got their own programming that's been airing. Yeah. So uh, broadcast television... It is not like it was when you and I grew up, where there was, you know, channel two through thirteen and then the U and channels fourteen through ninety nine on the on the on the UHF dial. Now broadcast television is digital. And so using the same bandwidth as an old school television broadcast, modern um, broadcasters can broadcast up to twelve channels. So in the case of FNX, uh, we are owned um, by uh, PBS San Bernardino, California, mm-hmm. and they are currently channel 24. So they're channel 24.1, mm-hmm. and then channel 24.2 is FNX, and then channel, point, channel 24.3 is uh, a sta- another PBS sister channel called Create, which is like sewing and cooking shows. Okay. And then uh, 24.4 is another channel that we used to program exclusively for the Palm Springs area, but now it mostly just repeats what we have on channel 24.1. Oh, okay. So that's how um, you can call, you know, the the Milwaukee PBS and say, "Hey, we want you to pick up FNX," and they can say, "Okay," and all they have to do then is just recalculate how they handle their bandwidth mm-hmm. and, you know, steal a little bit from Peter to pay Paul and give us a little bit of their signal strength, and they could be having um, channel eighteen point one or whatever eighteen point five. That uh, they would need to have FNX on their PBS station. Okay, and then really, basically, they're airing then U twenty four seven when they do that. Yeah, we come down off the same PBS satellite. Most PBS stations have a main, like a PBS as their as their dot one channel, and then um, usually they have a, what's what's called a PBS Kids twenty four seven, which is just children's programming, mm-hmm. and uh, that's exactly what it sounds like. It's twenty four hours of PBS Kids programming, and then. Um, they usually have uh, either create or world on their dot three and dot four, and uh, so we—it's just a matter of convincing them that um, your local PBS station, who should listen to you because you are, you know, theoretically a dues-paying member of your local PBS station, and if you're not, even they're getting money on your behalf from the federal government. So in in states with a large Indian population, I, I feel that it's it's kind of incumbent upon those station managers to listen to their native populations and to pick up America's only Native American television network. Tremendous. So the practical point is if someone is not able to access 
FNX in their local community, they can get on the phone, call the public broadcasting station that is responsible for content in their community, in their state, and say, hey, could you carry FNX? It's really that easy. Uh, letters also work. Letters are actually even in some ways even more effective because it just sits there on somebody's desk until they start to feel guilty about it. Okay. And um, the best thing that we've discovered is letters from local tribal um, uh, leadership authorities. Okay. And, you know, when the tribe says, hey, we, you know, you represent 33,000 of our local members. Why are we not being represented on the on the airwaves, mm-hmm. that kind of gets somebody's attention when mm-hmm. that letter arrives in the mail. So now question, if someone's saying, okay, this all sounds very simple, but I've heard about First Nations experience, I've heard of FNX, but I don't even know where to point them. If I say, why don't you carry this channel, and they say, we never heard of it, what do we do? Well, um, sometimes I do speak to PBS station managers who say, I've never heard of you, what are you? And I'm like, I'm, do you have Create, do you have World? And they say, yeah, and I say, I'm coming off the same satellite. So uh, in that situation, what I do is I point people to uh, fnx.org, oh, okay. fnx.org, and that's, um, you know, First Nations experience. Uh, and uh, fnx.org, not only does it have a description of uh, what we do and, you know, who we are and what we seek to do, um, but there's also, we have a, a, a small but growing um, library of our content there. The first three years uh, of the deals we were signing did not allow us to rebroadcast um, to the Internet. These days, I'm also a, a film school professor. None of my film school students even watch television. They watch everything on the computer. Or they watch it on their on their uh, um, iPad or they watch it. One kid last year, I signed Lawrence of Arabia, and he watched it on his iWatch. Oh, really? Which is his Apple Watch. So, uh-huh. um, you know, so we, we recognized that we needed it to sort of move quickly to the Internet space. And so we've, we've been building out a, um, a lot of programming on fnx.org. But it's not like there's a live feed or something? No, there's not a live feed. It's just certain shows, um, some number of episodes per show. Okay. So anybody who's listening to this show who's unaware of FNX, they can go right now, right after the show, because we're winding up real quick, to fnx.org, and they can start viewing First Nations Experience content. Today, yeah. Wow. Micah, it sounds like you guys are doing great work. We appreciate you coming by and uh, joining us. Uh, thank you very much for having us. It's uh, Getting the word out is a big challenge, but um, you know, hopefully with programs like yours, we can do it. Someone was inspired by listening, but they just need one extra nudge. Why should they be the one that calls their public uh, broadcasting TV station? You got a final uh, uh, word of encouragement for a listener? I, I would say this. You are already paying for this channel. Your tax dollars support it. So you should get some value out of it. Tremendous. Excellent. That's Micah Wright, one of the executives with the team of First Nations Experience, the Native television channel you can get more information at fnx.org well our time has slipped away from us in today's edition of american indian living i'm dr david derose hopefully today's show has helped you get more of a feel for what's happening in indian country and ultimately helps you to be in the very best of health for all of us that's my wish i'm dr david derose native voice one the Native American Radio Network.